are listening to Last Word Soccer Club Radio. Only here, lastwordonsports.com. What's up, Internet? My name is Matt Pollard, and you are listening to Last Word Soccer Club Radio here at LastWordOnSports.com. It is the afternoon of Saturday, June 17th, 2023. The United States and Canada are set to play in the final of the Nations League, what, uh, 26, 27 hours from now at time of recording. And uh, we officially have the new permanent head coach of the United States men's national team. Joining me now to talk about the new boss, same as the old boss, uh, on location on the Vegas Strip, Edward Bento. Ed, how are you? How have the last... Uh, you can say for stuff that's not safe for the pod if you did anything on the Strip, but from a soccer perspective, how have the last 36 hours been for you? It's been a lot of fun, a lot of shock, a lot of intensity, you know, especially with the stuff on the field during the game, but yeah, it's been quite a few days for U.S. soccer. Yes, very much so. Uh, so the uh, semifinals for the Nations League took place earlier this week on Thursday. Canada with a 2-0 victory over Panama. And I don't know that we have a whole lot that we want to say about this. So we're, we're going to segment this, listeners. Like, I'm sure a lot of the USMNT content that you have consumed over the course of the last three or four days has been very scatterbrained, and understandably so. Here at Last Word, we're going to try and actually, first, we're going to talk about the actual soccer that happened first, and we're going to try and not get caught off on too many tangents. Or if we do, it's going to be because somebody's shirts got ripped and then they got a red card, so it'll actually be deserved. But uh, Tracy Cicero, Ed, as you had in your headline for um, Last Word, a 3-0 victory for the United States over Mexico. Um Goal from Christian Pulisic in the 37th minute after a little flub up at the back from the back line of Mexico. And then one minute into, maybe two minutes technically into uh, the second half, uh, Tim Wea setting up Pulisic for a nice little finish as well. Um, and then ultimately as Ricardo Pepe off of the bench to score in the 78th minute. But the real fireworks took place in the 69th and then the... 85th minute as we saw four red cards across this game two for either side after who is it for mexico as for it was montez who had a serious foul on a usa player western mckinney defends his teammates and then he gets a red card despite seven mexico players uh ganging up on him and uh mckinney tearing his shirt and then proceeding to kiss it so i mean i mean and if we had a u.s soccer like if we had a USMNT hall of fame like that's up there with like with like shillings bloody sock from the world series as far as i'm concerned and then uh, you had a, and then you had some hands to the face from both sides from Arsidino Des and then Artigua on uh, in the 85th minute. Um, Ed, let's start with let, let's start with the lineup for you because this is the first time I think USMNT Twitter has probably agreed in like the last four years. I don't think anybody had any complaint about this lineup, and I can't remember the last time that happened. Yeah, no, this was probably the best lineup possible with the roster, given that Tyler Adams isn't available. So. I, yeah, no complaints. Top to bottom, it was a perfect 11. 
And then I'll run through that for those of you who don't have it as well. So we had Matt Turner in goal. Uh, we had a back four. I'll go from left to right. Jedi, Chris Richards, uh, Miles Robinson, and Sergio Dest. In midfield, it was a 4-2-3-1. So in the double pivot, you had McKenney and Musa, which maybe my only complaint would have been the positioning of Musa, but it actually ended up working out pretty well, at least for me. Ed, and then in the three, you had Christian Pulisic on the left, Tim Weah on the right, Gio Reyna up the middle, and then uh, Florian Balogun up top. Um Ed, what did we make of Flo's debut? I thought he did some good stuff as well, but at the same time, in the 65th minute, he probably would have been like, what have I just signed up for? This is CONCACAF. I just wanted to go to the World Cup, boys. Yeah, um, he was good. I Like you said, there were some things I liked. Um, he did a good job of kind of attracting a lot of the attention of the defenders, which gave Wea and Lissick freedom to kind of do whatever they wanted. So... That was nice. I was kind of hoping he was a, would have been a little bit more involved in the game plan, but you know what? It resulted in a win, so I can't complain too much. But yeah, he he seemed shocked that about some of the events that happened. So I, I definitely it was definitely a culture change for him for sure. Mm-hmm. I really like some of his build-up play from a passing standpoint. What he did defensively, Ed. Maybe the one complaint that I had to your point of was he wasn't actually like truly goal dangerous. But you know, when uh, when everything's ultimately set up for Christian Pulisic to be the effective player, I don't have a whole lot of complaints. So that's maybe my one little note that I have. And I felt like from a possession standpoint, he combined better with Wea than some of the other guys up top. Um, is that just happenstance? Have they come up with a good groove in the, what, four or five days of training he had prior to that? Maybe. Uh, Tim Weah obviously had been playing in France. Balogun had been on loan in France, so maybe they watch each other play. They've obviously, I assume, played against each other. Not that, like, I'm playing as an attacker for one team, you're playing as an attacker for the opponent. We overlap and then therefore have an understanding. So maybe I'm speaking something into existence that just happens to be a coincidence. But that'd be the thing that I'd really like to see. Certainly, I think Florian should be um, starting on starting tomorrow, even with what Ricardo Pepe did off the bench for the Pepe train to make it trace a snarrow. Um, th- that's the thing that I want to see. I want to see like a clear step that like what happened in the semifinal made him better in the final as well. And obviously, given that the U.S. doesn't isn't going to be going through World Cup qualification, obviously, the big guns aren't going to be coming to the Gold Cup next month, regardless of who's coaching them. I don't know. Is, is Burhalter is he allowed to change that? Um, <laughs> there, there's not going to be as many opportunities for him to get more meaningful game time with some of his other teammates, given that the U.S. is automatically qualifying. There'll still be plenty of camps and some European stuff and hopefully a Copa America and other stuff. But given the significance that these are his first two 180, 210 minutes that he's going to get with the national team, I'd like there to be clear progress between what happened on Thursday and what happened on Sunday. And I have to believe and I hope that he's better now with the program than he was, say, a week ago or certainly when he announced um, a couple of weeks earlier. So um, we'll get on um, from the lineup as well. But, um, you know, Ed, it, it still continues to fascinate me that this is a theme that has now gone through multiple generations of national team players, where regardless of what happen- is happening for their club team, they're very, very good with their national team, particularly when it means something for them. We've seen Josie Altidore go months without scoring goals when he was playing in Europe and show up for the U.S. and be exactly himself. And given the year that Weston McKenney had, you know, with Juventus and then going on loan and getting relegated with Leeds, given obviously Christian Pulisic, who was probably just happy to be playing a game outside of the Premier League, was nice for him. Like, he was vibing. 
uh, McKenney was vibing, Gio Reyna was vibing, maybe Reyna would be in a better position if Dortmund subbed him on 20 minutes earlier, and he's talking about winning a Bundesliga, but that's not his fault and everything. Like, just guys just seem to be really happy and together, and I'm not sure that there was one guy on here who was like, it's two games, we've already won the Nations League, who cares? And nobody was like, okay, now I'm going on vacation. Anthony Robinson was still himself. Dest, other than the moment of red mist, was still himself. You know, Ed, what did you just make of the fact that, could you know, meaningful national team game and everybody took it seriously and it looked like we picked up from where they were in the world cup in terms of what it meant to them yeah no they uh the vibes had been high like you said i had seen a lot of interviews where you know christian was saying he's just happy to be here like with uh with matt turner and with the guys and you know like tim way is another guy who doesn't necessarily play a lot at Lille, but when he gets gets with the boys on the national team. He turns it up. He, he I really liked what I saw from him yesterday. There just is the collectiveness with this roster that I think we haven't necessarily seen in the past. That's really fun to watch. They all seem to really get along and really love playing with each other. And I have to think that that's been a key, not saying that Serginho Dest or that Anthony Robinson's picked the U.S. over their other dual national opportunities just because of the vibes. But when you see a group on the up that plays some fun soccer, regardless of who the past or future current head coach is going to be and everything, like, I think it's the fact that, like, they're together and they're all happy to see each other. You know, um, Christian Pulisic was talking with the Leeds guys after a game earlier this season as well. And I don't remember what the result was. Chelsea wasn't playing good, but neither was Leeds as well. And just like, they're all happy to see each other. They're all happy to be around each other. And they play good soccer together when they're empowered to do so. And I have to believe on some level that in the past and more recently with Balogun has been a recruiting variable that's been significant. They're a fun group of people to be around. We've seen in the past some of those Spanish national team camps and you know there's a you know there's a rift there's a divide between the Barca camp and then the Real Madrid camp and the two or three guys that play elsewhere or who play abroad or anything where it's like you know there you know there's no mean girl vibes that are coming in and around this as well. Um you know maybe there's some situation with you know who the now former substitute teacher is going to be but again We'll we'll get into that later. Let's come on to the actual goals themselves as well. To to that point, Ed, about how happy to see each other playing well, being themselves and everything. I mean, I'd have to, off the top of my head, excluding the fact that the World Cup is more significant than what this game was. I don't. I can't remember the last game off the top of my head. We've seen a better version of Christian Pulisic. No, absolutely. He was he was tremendous. Um, he was just so so active so involved in like everything went through him it felt like except for maybe the last goal I can't remember if he got a touch on that I don't think he did but both goals that he scored of course he was involved in he had that chance just 10-15 minutes before his first goal where he made a tremendous run to get around Ochoa in the defense so yeah he was he looked like the Pulisic we know you know that we're used to not the not the shell that we've seen at Chelsea recently yeah, I mean, he looked like he looked like the best version of himself that we know has been in there, but has, to your point, hasn't always come about, which has been disappointing in the past. But again, you know, I, I have to think he's coming in. He's feeling good. He's going to go feel better into the summer as well. Um, and I have to imagine that, uh, you know, that Todd Bowley's probably thinking, well, oh, he scored two goals in the national in the in Nations League and everything like he's worth at least a couple million more. But um, I, I'm looking forward to I think the really interesting this is going to be such a critical summer for, I think, a number of. U.S. national team players, because I think uh, I think it's a good question. Where does Dest go, and does he go into a better situation 
does Pulisic finally get into a healthy situation with the club that he's at as well? Reyna going into a proper preseason healthy as well. And we'll see what happens in terms of, you know, what's going on with the increasing the the big bald 3G'd elephant in the room as well. But like there's so many USMNT players who were coming out of really tough club years or off of ones that were a disappointment relative to the World Cup that we just know by the fact of them making a move is going to energize them differently. And does that make them a better overall player that just doesn't exist inside this U.S. bubble as well? Anything specifically? You mentioned the the build-up play before the first goal. Do we want to? Uh, do you want to talk about either of the first two goals in, individually, or anything that you saw in person? Ed, I just really liked, um, specifically on the second goal, Weston McKinney and uh, Weah had a really nice link-up. Um, so it was nice to see Wes. I know he's not known for his attacking ability necessarily. He's not really known to progress at least passes like that. So it was nice to see that club out of his bag there uh but other than that i can't really think of anything that stuck out to your point and i mean we, we've seen moose is the one that's kind of a hard harder player to pin down either in terms of his individual position or where he fits into a formation because if we look at like the 4-3-3 setup in some of the world cup games as well there's points where he was roaming he was going out to the right as well he's more positionally ambiguous than i think any of the other guys up front um you know obviously you know we know what Pulisic's doing we know what way is doing geo's gonna geo's mobile but he's not he's not ambiguous in that you can put geo in a box and he's still extremely effective and the concern that i had from a tactical standpoint albeit from an interim substitute manager as well of whether or not that was going to limit musa but i mean there were long stretches going in and other than maybe a few moments where there was a turnover at midfield and then mexico tried to do stuff in transition probably more before the first goal than anything after that where there was no point on the field where i immediately was like okay this is where we're missing tyler adams or this is where that's going to be a problem now was that mckinney elevating himself was that way of being maybe willing to be a little bit more constrained into a role was that just the energy of everybody was a little bit more jazzed up because it was usa versus mexico and the crowd turned into a wwe monday night raw crowd by the end of the game as well but like I had absolutely no disrespect uh, to the captain and to, in my argument, at worst, the third best player on the national team. There was at no point during the 90 minutes I was like, oh, crap, we don't have Tyler Adams and this is a huge hole to fill. And I think that's more credit to what Weston and Musa did. And I think, again, it speaks to the fact that MMA's midfield is just going to be as fantastic as it was at the World Cup and in qualification will continue to be, um, you know, the heart and the, the tempo center for the national team. Well, we're handling this chronologically, Ed, so let's get to it. Um, listeners, you, you have seen the film. You've seen everything that's happened and everything. I won't go through, you know, you know, moment by moment like a, a crime scene or breaking down the Renaissance painting that was some of the photos of McKenney versus all, basically, and the red cards and everything. Um, Ed, your, your reaction in person? And, I mean, I, I, I still don't fully understand the officiating decision. You want to give Weston a red fine, but then I don't know how Mexico has more than eight guys on the field after that, if that's the standard on what a red card is given. But so. Well, I think, you know, speaking on that, I just think the ref lost control of the game. First and foremost, he was kind of just, I think he was just ready to give out a card to whoever got involved. So I think Wes was a bit unlucky to get a red there. Um, in, in the stadium, in the box specifically, a lot of us were kind of leaning over to each other like, 
who got the red there. Like we, we couldn't necessarily tell what was going on. We were looking up at the TV, just kind of helping each other get our notes straight because it was just a, like I mentioned on the Twitter, it was just a big scrum between everyone on the field. Um, but yeah, I just think it was a testament of the ref kind of losing control of the game. Obviously the players were fired up. I really loved the, um, geo geo showing a little passion you know he's received a lot of uh there's been a lot of discourse about him not you know showing a lot of emotion so it was nice to see him kind of put those critics to rest but yeah it was i just think it was the ref losing control really is what comes down to it i don't think west deserved a red i could see ed where the we've seen this in MLS in the past. So like 2017, 2018, pros started to have a real rule about you touch the, you know, the hand, the head or the neck in any area. And that's immediately a red card. And that was to cut down on that content. So I am fine with officials. I'm a little bit more malleable when it comes to officiating across all the sports that I watch, where as long as they're consistent, I don't care if it's a tight game or I don't care if you not prison rules, but like the I'm staying out of this kind of a moment. And so if that's how you want, if you want to officiate a high energy, high stakes rivalry game where one team's showing up to play and being them best selves and the other one is literally imploding and you want to call that a tight game, I'm totally fine. But if that's a red card for Weston McKenney, then by the laws of the game, there should have been so many red cards for Mexican players. I don't know if you know this, Ed. Uh, you can't finish a game with more than with less than seven people on the field. So you get what you get. You get five red cards, and then effectively, like the game's over, you already forfeit. This game should have been called earlier because Mexico should have had more players kicked out as well. There should have been at least two other red cards in that scrum where it was West McKinney versus El Tree Fight Club. Um. The referee, listeners, was uh, Ivan Barton. He is uh, from Salvador. Read into that what you will, but I agree completely, Ed. He 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 lost the plot and lost control of the game as well. And I thought uh, both teams had players get in the mud. I thought uh, Death's red card, which we'll come on to in a minute, was completely inexcusable. If he keeps his head in that moment and just lets the Mexican player go after him, he looks at the ref, points at the player, and then it's okay, red card, you know, you've you know, you, uh, you know, you schooled somebody else in that regard. Um, I don't fault Weston for the way that he handled it. To your point, Ed, I don't fault Geo for the way that he handled it as well. This is a this is a group of players that, especially when it comes to USA Mexico, have that dog in them, and they're not going to. In the same way that like Dempsey's a little bit crazy and like would punch his teammates in training, but then like afterwards would be joking with them as well like i want guys who have that dog in them i want guys who are going to stand up for their teammates that is a good character trait to have that's a good way of handling it um and the referee lost control in a way that's ultimately going to hurt the u.s in a final and if he had controlled it a little bit more there were plenty of ways for the u.s to have a firm backbone and not stand down or be subservient to mexico without that would not have been Mexico shows up, their fans are throwing trash on the field, they're yelling the P word, you've got, I don't know how well you could have seen in the stadium, Ed, but there were green lasers on, on, uh, on Tim, on, um, on Matt Turner, the entire game as well. Mexico showed up, brought a mud pit, brought a angry mob with pitchforks and torches, and they threw mud at the USA players, and they could have held their own they could have stood their ground without joining mexico in the mud pit for the debauchery that proceeded 
after that. Um, but I'm, I'm far more upset for if I was on the coaching staff, I'd be far more upset at Dest for how he handled his moment than Weston for how he handled his moment, regardless of how either of those were officiated. Um, I kind of already touched on those as well. Um, Eddie, Ed, anything that you want to say about uh, um, Dest and uh, Arteaga throwing hands in the 85th? Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it was unfortunate. And this is kind of true of kind of wrapping up all the the big conca cappy moments. It was just unfortunate to kind of see the team lose their heads a little bit, uh, especially Dest. You know, just with the way we played, you know, I, I haven't seen the U.S. dominate Mexico like that maybe in my lifetime. So it was a little disappointing to kind of see them lose their cool and maybe take something away from that now that Dest and McKinney have to miss the final. But yeah, it was, you know, it was just pure dominance. I, I wish they had kind of kept their cool. But then again, and heat of the moment, biggest rivalry in the region. It's got to be difficult to keep your cool like that. Absolutely. And it should be said, you had a question earlier, Ed, about whether or not Wes McKenney was involved in the buildup on the Ricardo Pepe goal. Um, I'm not sure if he was, but Dest did have the primary assist to Ricardo Pepe's goal. So um, El Train was on and Dest was certainly himself prior to the red card uh, there on the right for the United States. Um Ed, nice to see similarly for Ricardo Pepe, who I think individually got to a good place in terms of what he was doing. Obviously, Gronigan getting relegated didn't really help him, but I think he proved himself in the Eredivisie where there's going to be, I think it was PSV, and I'm not sure if there was another club as well. So similar to other players, he's going to get a good opportunity off of this. So again, I think it was nice for a guy who probably had an exhausting up and down season um, to get his goal. I don't know that, and I, I think, I, I don't know if the players... Ed, do we know if the players knew coming out for the second half what the news had broken about Burhalter? I don't know. I was actually standing right next to Pulisic when Paul Tenorio asked him about it. And Pulisic seemed like he, Pulisic had no idea. So I don't think they knew. When he okay. came out into like the mixer where the press was and Paul mentioned it to him, he was like, is that real? Like, is that he was like, is that? happening i don't know anything about that so i don't know if he was just saying that to say that for the press but as far as i know they did not know at halftime okay so the, the one question i would have had there ed is then do you see do you see peppy with a little bit more pep in his step given the opportunities that he's had for burhalter and then balligan comes in and he kind of thinks well if i score a goal that's maybe a statement for me in terms of where i should be in the pecking order from a striker position but i guess if he didn't know then he was just l train trying to be l train um and given obviously the narrative around him and everything uh you know scoring against mexico obviously means a lot to him in ways that balligan obviously is better is obviously got a, cra a literal crash course introduction into CONCACAF and USA Mexico but maybe that game doesn't mean as much as you know if you were to play England or one of the other European teams maybe but um you know good on Pepe and I still think Balogun for the sake of the um experiment should get a start but I mean um you know unless unless the uh, uh, unless it's an absolute blowout tomorrow against Canada I do think Pepe can and will see the field and I do think he should be in consideration for national team going forward if if it was a world cup tomorrow and i had to name my 23-man squad um l tree l train is on uh is on that train or that bus uh out to the world cup and everything um just uh, i'll run down through the other substitutes we have there were a lot of them going through so um um you had luca de la torre come in in the 75th for Gio reina pepe obviously for balligan in the 75th as well 
Uh, Walker Zimmerman made an appearance um, in the 81st for Miles Robinson and then Brendan Aronson for Tim Weah. And then was that the last one? And then you had right in the 89th just to get Pulisic off the field right as he got a yellow card for time wasting. Or maybe that was in the process of getting substituted. You had Joe Scally coming in. I don't know that we can say that much about the substitutes, uh, um, Ed, given that it was 10 v 10 by the time the U.S. made their first substitution and already 2-0. And three of the substitutes already came after the um, the third goal. But, you know, I know you're not much of an MLS guy, Ed, but just to see Walker Zimmerman back of the team healthy and everything was kind of nice. I still think he has a role to be on the team. And Brennan Aronson's going to run around and impress a whole lot of people. Yeah, and also, um, I imagine that Scally and Della Torre will probably replace Dest and McKinney in the lineup. So nice for them to get out there and stretch their legs a little bit before possibly most likely starting the final. Um, last thing that I'll say on this side, just to, to make it completely clear, this is, you mentioned it, that you thought it was the most dominating performance you've seen USA versus Mexico in your lifetime. And I'll, I'll say it for me as well, that, uh, that was very much the same and had the U S not gotten any red cards or at the very least had, um, uh, had Des not gotten his red card. I would have said this, this would have been an absolute beat down. This was the worst, uh, not to turn this into a Mexican national team podcast, but I mean, Coming out of what clearly was dysfunction and poor staff management in the World Cup to then have your first competitive game be this one where you're completely unraveled, you're you're pantsed by your rival, you completely implode as well, a bunch of red cards as well. Um, th- this is the kind of stuff, Ed, where even if you've got like a new head coach who's clearly an adult in the room coming from Tigres, if I'm not mistaken, as well, like this is the kind of stuff that uh, that Miguel Ojeda would have been fired uh, with like immediately like on the spot like this like it would not be uncommon for this to happen and then like press release in the middle of a tournament saying that head coach is not continuing beyond the tournament or has been fired and an assistant's taking over for the final um, and I really think that Mexican soccer from that standpoint is rotten to the core on so many levels in terms of just how Liga MX is handling some of their youth players and how they go about selling players as well. Um, that has limited those opportunities for those players in Europe, which I think is uh, they, the players exist in a bubble. I mean, they have to play outside of that bubble can be extremely difficult for them. I was kind of looking, I'm, uh, I'm a bit of an Eredivisie guy, Ed. So I was watching, I really loved what Santi Jimenez did for Feyenoord winning the uh, the league this year and I thought he absolutely deserved a call up the fact that he didn't start I thought was kind of a disappointment in that regard but he's like the one exception you have with that obviously they didn't have Chucky Lozano he's so critical to the way they play and everything but like you've got a transient process with the players it's not obvious in four years that Liga MX is going to change what it's doing in order to benefit U.S. soccer say what you will about how MLS and U.S. soccer were in bed with each other or how toxic they are individually and together at the very least like they have some coherence in like mutually beneficial player roster decisions as well that has certainly benefited the national team as well they don't have anything like that there's questions about composure with the coach you've still got their players um you know excuse me not their players you still have their Fans chanting the P word, albeit most of those are American based Mexican um, immigrants in the United States. We hear this way more listeners here than we do at the Azteca. I do think it is worth differentiating those as well. I guess to, to that point, Ed, you heard you learned something when we had the when we had the stoppage um, and the announcement about that in the stadium. Yeah, it was sad 
you know, it sucks to see that happen. Uh, Matt Turner was visibly frustrated. You could see, I think, the the one right before, or no, two before, two times before the ref blew the whistle, um, Matt would threw his arms up because they, they kept doing it. And then, yeah, later on, the a CONCACAF official came into the press conference room and said that the re- referee's discretion was the reason why the game ended five or so minutes early, not having anything to do with the chant, according to them. Uh, if you believe that, that's all well and good. I don't necessarily believe that. But yeah, I, I've I, just to speak on Mexico real quick, I've also seen reports already that Diego Coca, it's like gold cup or bust for him. Like he, he they're going to give him the gold cup and let's face it they're probably not going to win that so he 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 could be he could be out already by the end of this year it wouldn't surprise me you know and then and then who do you turn to given the churn of managers you had going into the 2018 world cup and then obviously tata's not coming back uh tata's probably <laughs> it's probably a matter of once Messi signs on the dotted line them asking hey do you want tata and then okay we'll get him if if that's really what they want but um no i i think it's a this is I don't know where you go from here, Ed, if you're CONCACAF or any of the sub-competitions within that as well, because clearly the warnings aren't doing a whole lot. Like, at some point, I don't know where you go from a punishment standpoint that actually gets the fans to change their behavior. Because to my earlier point as well about the difference between what you have when it's a Mexico game based in the U.S. or somewhere else versus when they're playing at the Azteca is very different in terms of how prevalent that how prevalent the p word comes out and so i think that it's worth pointing out that it's not necessarily mexicans based in mexico going to see their national team within their own country and while i think a fan ban would be one effective way of doing that i think you're punishing a lot of you're punishing maybe the wrong fan base as well I don't know how CONCACAF can do that when Mexico plays in the U.S. Because let's be real, El Tri plays two friendlies anywhere on the continent against anybody. It's going to make them money. It makes Liga Mekis, not Liga Mekis. It makes El Tri money. It makes CONCACAF money. It makes the venue money. It makes the opposing team that's showing up to be the Washington Generals money as well. So, and then I, I don't know how you could, I don't know how you could legislate or properly ensure that if it's USA versus Mexico, like, let's actually have it be a USA home crowd because we know it's not the Americans saying the P word and not having those show up in the secondary market or, you know, just I, that, that's a really that's a, a dangerous precedent to have there. But I mean, short of I mean, do you I, I don't know how FIFA handles that. Like, do you uh, an overreach, but an extremely effective way of doing that would be at the referee's discretion. You go to the head coach of the team whose fans are not doing the racist thing and you're saying pick a player you want off we're giving them a red card you know i think you know that would be an extremely effective way of curtailing that as well i don't know that valencia fans as much as they wanted to say uh racist things towards um uh who is it for brazil whose name i can never remember not brazil uh, brazil but then uh real madrid go ahead ed Vinicius. Vinicius, thank you. I don't know the Valencia fans, if they have a choice between let's be racist against Vinicius, that that is worth them getting their best players sent off. So that's just, I'm, I'm spitballing ideas because I don't know what else to do because, you know, wagging your feet at Mexico and saying that you're going, yeah, putting out a press release, 
finding them a meager amount of money clearly isn't going to be effective. And it's disgusting that we're still having this conversation in 2023. And I'd be, I'd, I bet you, I bet you my next paycheck right now, Ed, that we're going to hear the P word chant on Sunday when it's Panama versus Mexico. And so I think that just speaks from the reality of the problem. And at some point, CONCACAF or FIFA or uh, El Tri are going to have to say, what do, like, do we want to stand with our values or do we want to, do we want to stand with our values at the risk of upsetting our stream of money. And we know where FIFA and CONCACAF tend to go when it's the choice between upstanding organization that has like values and morals versus we versus Yoki daddy. So, um, so there's that, um, anything else that we want to say about this game specifically Ed, or shall we move on? I'm good. I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, um, also the, to, to your point Ed, about the, uh, about the discretion I have dealt with, there's been a few very small cases of viewer chant coming out here for the Colorado Rapids. And I have heard, I've spoken to people with connections at FIFA and the league about how they actually handle that. So the term that FIFA has, Ed, for at the referee's discretion about pausing the match for an announcement or delaying or delaying the match and having the players go into the locker room or abandoning the match is whether or not the chant is widespread. It's worth pointing out that FIFA has not specified what widespread constitutes as. And when that's come up in MLS, MLS also doesn't define that. From what I heard on the broadcast, from what you heard in person, I would say the P-word chant was widespread on Thursday. So that led to delay the announcement that you obviously had um, in the two different languages from the PA announcement. The next thing that would have happened at that point would have been the referee straight up stopping the game, players going into the locker room until... um, that you know until the chance stops and the announcements read again and there is a path forward for at the discretion of the referee to abandon the game um and how much of what you heard from that CONCACAF official was them like semantics of what was actually happening um to the point of how the Salvadorian official lost control of the game 12 minutes of stoppage time when it's 3-0 and Mexico's down a man and everything like I don't care how much stoppage time there was I don't care how many subs how many goals or what the whistle should have been blown at 90-01 90-02 at the absolute most like this you know like it was a powder keg and he only made it worse so um, credit to him for maybe correcting in that regard, Ed, in deciding that the final seven minutes of minimum of stoppage time could have been taken care of in seven minutes. But let's move on to the Nations League final, which will be tomorrow. Uh, this will be at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time for you listeners on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, for those of you who want to watch just more shenanigans take place, you can pregame Panama versus Mexico, which will be taking place at 6 p.m. But obviously the big one that we care about here is Canada versus the United States. Fairly textbook performance from the Canadians and John Herdman's side to get a 2-0 victory over Panama in their semifinal before the USA-Mexico game. Um Ed, I agree with you. I think it will be Luca De La Torre in for the suspended Weston McKenney, and I think it will be Joe Scally in for the suspended Serginho Dest. I do think I'm okay with it being LDLT and Yunus Musa. I think we could see an earlier pivot or maybe a slight shape change in terms of the personnel as well. I have to imagine we're going to see Brendan Aronson earlier in this game than we saw in the final. Um, given how those circumstances are as well, and given he played fewer minutes and obviously Musa started. Um, and I'm, I'm worried about Joe Scally, especially if we're talking about Alfonso Davies starting for Canada on the left for them as well. I'm far more worried about that than I am about what's going on at midfield personnel-wise. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. I, I get that. I'm a little concerned about that as well. I do think, however, 
you know, he's gone against him in the Bundesliga. Joe Scali is a not an everyday starter for uh, Gladbach, but he starts pretty frequently. So he's definitely played against Davies before. Uh, not, I guess, not quite at this stage. If you want to say the Nations League final is a bigger stage than the Bundesliga, you have every right to say that. I don't know that I would, but, you know, representing your country is different. So I'm sure it'll mean a lot to Scali to get out there. Um, but yeah, I think LDLT is the perfect replacement for McKinney. And yes, I think Aronson will probably see some time. I could see him maybe coming off for Wea. At some point, I know they like to use him as a winger every now and again, but most likely for Reyna. I'd be fine with either of those, Ed. I'd be fine with one of those taking place at halftime. I'd be fine with those. You know, if we don't see Aronson by the 60th minute, it better be like 4-0 U.S. and then it doesn't even matter. And then at that point, um, you know, Aronson and Pepe are the are the victory cigars on the hour mark. Uh <laughs> I, I'm wondering if we might see uh, if we might see a shape change as well with that. I don't know that there's a viable third center back that you'd want to go in there between Chris Richard, maybe Walker Zimmerman because of just his experience. Uh, he played both of the games against Canada in World Cup qualification. I thought um, Austin Trusty's obviously come off a really good season in the championship, but I think this is more a, a reintroduction and, hey, show me what you can do probably on loan somewhere else because um, I don't think he's going to be playing. I don't think he's going to be playing for Arsenal with uh, all the Champions League games that they're playing. But I, I think there's options that Callahan could have in there. He could change the shape at the back. He could change the shape in the middle to kind of deal with that. But at some point, Jeff Scali is going to have to go up against Alfonso Davies and just not get cooked. And if he manages to do that, I'm fairly confident elsewhere on the pitch, uh, given what we saw in those two games and the way that Canada's handling things, that the U.S. should be able to do this. I, I think the, the two narratives, the, um, the two outcome narratives that you have on this, unlike the, you know, if blank happens, Canada wins. If blank happens, the United States win. I think the most likely scenario for Canada is just Alfonso Davies being the best player on the pitch and Joe Scali or whomever else not handling it. And if he's remotely okay, it could be a close game. But other places at center back, at goalkeeper, in the midfield, certainly up top when the U.S. is attacking Canada, those are enough other areas where I think the U.S. has an advantage to where this is a competitive game, provided it's not Scally versus Alfonso Davies with 40 yards of space off of a broken down corner for the U.S. Yeah, um, one other player that I hope gets some time that I hope we didn't just bring him just to be for in training camp is uh, Taylor Booth. I'm a big Booth believer. Uh, he had a great season. Uh, where is he playing now? It, it, it eludes me. I'm, I'm hyping him up, and I can't even remember where he plays. Um, anyway, it's he had a really good club season, um, and I hope to see him get some minutes as well because I, it would be disappointing if they brought him just to be like a training camp guy. He was at Utrecht this year. That's uh, yeah. Ed. So I mean, yeah, you know, welcome to welcome to welcome to Americans abroad in Holland eating waffles <laughs> and uh, and French fries with uh, mayonnaise on them as well. Let's just go through the roster as well. Um, Ed, uh, so we've talked about them. Uh, I think we agree that it's still going to be Matt Turner and goal, even though I think Sean Johnson's a great vibes training guy as well. We talked about Zimmerman and Trusty as well. Uh, Cardoso, Sendejas, and uh, Sonoros, uh, the other kind of attacking midfielder ones that we have that have been in and around the camp post-World Cup um, that we haven't really seen as well. Ed, anything that we want to see from them, or are they? is this more of a 
here's your taste to then get ready for the gold cup. I feel that way around about at least two of them. I agree. Um, I guess in a blowout, if they, if they're, if they're on the bench and if it's the blowout either way, maybe just, you know, get him, get him on the field, get him some, get, get some minutes. Um, but other than that, yeah, I think they're probably gold cup options more likely. Yeah, I think there could be I think there could be a really similar parallel to their trajectory within the program to what Kellen Acosta had in the summer of 2021, Ed, where it was kind of he hadn't been called up for a while. He gets, you know, he comes in playing out of position as a bench guy. I think he was at left back for that final in stoppage time or in extra time, excuse me in the final against Mexico in 2021. And then he plays well enough to where Greg's like, okay, you're in for the gold cup and everything. And then you're a starter for the gold cup. So the, I I don't know that any, to your point, I don't know that any of those guys to the field, if they are, they're probably going to be a fourth or fifth sub at that point. And it's going to be out of necessity because we're going 120 minutes. But, you know, I think this is a really good Hazen Dejas. Here's your exposure and everything. Like, here's how we run the camp and everything. Um, you know, get ready for the Gold Cup and then be ready to start in the Gold Cup and be an impact player in the Gold Cup in ways that Kellen Acosta was. And obviously, I'd say the ceiling for all three of those guys is higher than where um, Kellen is right now. You know, Kellen is, and, and I don't think he would be offended by saying this, like he is Tyler Adams' hamstring insurance at this point. And if it wasn't for the fact that he wasn't completely exhausted with, you know, the million games that LAFC has played and everything, I think he could have been in here. But I, I don't think he's mad. And I think he's at his level in being the first sub option off the bench for a Weston McKinney or a uh, or a Tyler Adams. Can one of those guys become that for the U.S. going forward as well, even if they're not impact players right now? That's the question I have for them. That's hopefully a question they'll be able to answer in the next couple of months. So um, I, I think we talked about, um, I guess, Ed, do we want to do predictions as well in here? Um I'm gonna back Joe Scally in this one. I say we go. I say we go one-one, and we go in extra time. And I say the U.S. win it in extra time, two-one in 120. Oh, I like that a lot. Um, I do want to throw it out there. I think there's a, you know, there should be a sense of like we got to take these guys out from the U.S. because in World Cup qualifying we tied them here and lost pretty handedly i mean it was two nothing but possession wise and things like that they were all over us we lost in canada during qualifying so i think the guys will be up for it um i think jonathan david will probably find a way to get on the score sheet i'll say two to one as well but in 90 yeah and i think this is kind of your definitive i think there's a balancing out ed between the U.S. winning the Nations League, which Canada obviously wasn't able to be at because of the that that was when the weird stuff was going on from a qualification standpoint, and they hadn't truly started. They hadn't started their ascent into the the uh, troposphere at that point, and then obviously the U.S. wins the Gold Cup effectively with a C team against Mexico's B team, um, and you know Canada absolutely got jobbed in that semifinal against Mexico from an officiating standpoint but then Canada clearly the best team in qualification the United States clearly the best of the CONCACAF nations at the World Cup as well so this final is almost perfect for like the this is the tiebreaker for who are the kings of CONCACAF to the extent that we really care about that I mean the Canadian soccer media isn't that mad I think I think for a lot of the Canadian national team fans they're just kind of happy to be here and to be relevant and be going to -to back-to-back World Cups and everything but you know, yeah, I I think it's fair to say, you know, that Canada was the better team through qualification. Jonathan David was the best striker you had, and Alfonso Davies was the best overall player you had in CONCACAF. And given that 
the U.S. had so many issues with the striker position, that was a point of pain, given that Christian Pulisic was not himself through qualification in ways that Davies was, that's a frustration. And so to be able to win this tiebreaker and say definitively, like, you know, uh, you know, the U.S. is definitely is dominating the rivalry with Mexico would be huge. And to win that tiebreaker, to win three CONCACAF trophies in what I think just barely two calendar years as well between the two Nations League and the Gold Cup. We'll see what happens next month. And then to also be able to say that you're the only CONCACAF team that got through to the knockout stage as well. I think that would be enough to overcome some of the tribulations the U.S. had in qualification where Canada, you know, was, um, you know, skating on easy street all the way to the top of that. And just the, the one loss for Canada and in a dead rubber game by the time they did lose that game. Okay, Ed. Let's talk about it. Um, the United States men's national team, after much tribulation, discussion, and clearly different views and everything, have decided to rehire Greg Berhalter. That news breaks, what, 10 minutes into the game against uh, Mexico on Thursday night from over to the Athletic, and very quickly ESPN confirms it, and then that kind of colored and completely changed our view around that game. Much of the second half was a blur, Ed, because I was having to explain to so many of my friends, like after everything that I'd said about that, um, coming out of the World Cup, I had said that I would have been okay but not happy with Greg Berhalter coming back. And the main reason that I had, the ma- my, ma- my main argument for that was the public support that he got from the players outside of Gio. And then with everything that got reported, how when there was a rift between him and Gio Reyna, how many of the players still sided with Greg. He is a flawed coach. He is a coach that's not particularly charismatic. I don't think he tries enough stuff from a tactical standpoint that are different and he clearly does have some personnel issues some of which were not his uh where there was there was mutual burning of the bridge between him and the reinas and we still don't fully know what happened with john brooks and i think those were omens that were bad and i wanted to see it i wanted to wait and hear from matt crocker who obviously came in it was intentionally outside of the bubble of u.s soccer and clearly looking with objective and fresh eyes i wanted to hear from him what his thinking was to where he ultimately led to Burhalter was the best candidate, maybe even regardless of the baggage that clearly Burhalter is coming with, to say nothing of the fact that still you have the track record where guys who come back for two straight World Cup cycles, that second World Cup does not go well with that head coach. And we've seen this with small nations. We've seen this with Germany. Um, I would argue you could say we saw this with England a little bit as well with Gary Southgate in back-to-back, well, um, in two World Cups and then the Euros as well. And then I wanted to hear from Greg how he was going to handle things differently. And we had the press conference. Things were said, Ed. Other stuff has been reported. I'm not convinced in the process from a hiring standpoint that Matt Crocker went at all. And the only thing that I'm slightly encouraged by what Burhalter said is him being at least somewhat extending an olive branch to Gio or saying that, like, at least publicly, he's treating every single player the same and it's a professional relationship and Gio's an important. The fact that he didn't come out and say, hey, it's all forgiven, or he didn't say, like, I'm banishing Geo to the Shadow Realm and everything. That was the only real positive off of this. I held back on all of my criticism because I wanted to hear about everything, and it's the same old, same old, and I'm upset about it, Edward. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, I've been pretty outspoken against um, Greg for some time now, at least among my circles, among my friends, and on my Twitter page. Um, I just don't see his coaching ability being the level that this team maybe not deserves but that this team can achieve i think that this group of players is proving that they have the capability to 
maybe not win a World Cup, but I think be competitive, and especially in 2026, and be competitive in Copa America. If if which I believe is happening next year, I think we'll be at Copa America next year. So I think this team can compete there, and I I just don't necessarily think that Greg Berhalter's tactical ability is quite there to be the the guy to get them over any kind of hump. Uh, he just doesn't adapt really. He kind of sticks to his guns, and there's something to be said about that. I guess that's a good that can be a good quality to have, but it can also be a detriment to have. And I think it's been you know, it's kind of been bad for the U.S. I mean, especially at the, you know, the World Cup, a goal, goals scored was needed. And we didn't have a striker like Balogun, but also he didn't bring Pepe to the World Cup. Uh, there's things like that, you know, the Reina drama. So it just, it, it felt weird to me that how this whole coaching process played out. Mm -hmm. I agree with you there, Ed. And it's not like the... Um, <clears throat> I think Greg did a lot that fans in the Federation ultimately wanted. Won the Nations League, won the Gold Cup, obviously. And the, the first and most important thing was to qualify for the World Cup. And the second most important thing was to get out of the group of the World Cup. And Greg did that. But the where I, I, I'm firmly with everything that happened with the investigation and everything. Um, Ed, the, uh, the Reinas were the most evil in that regard. And I think, ironically, the only truly innocent victim in all of that is Rosalind Berhalter, who, again, is having to relive all that stuff going on. I think the next most innocent person involved in that is Gio Reyna, because on some level he has to be thinking, like, guys, I didn't really need this. Like, let me go back to Dortmund. Let me focus on playing well as well. And then the most important thing is that new head coach gets hired and then he's going to call me, and I've got to make a good first impression with him, and I can just reach that. So I could completely understand from Gio's perspective as well from this point of like the, oh my God, I'm back into the hell that I was as well, and some of that was self-inflicting on me, but how do I know that the this is going to be such a narrative going through everything that's happening the rest of it of when Gio gets called up, when Gio's on the bench, when Gio's starting and everything, does Burhalter feel an obligation to start Gio as like almost an apology? Does he feel handhold into that because he know what the public perception is going to be outside of that? And I think there's going to be equal levels of which party is coming as a antagonist to that relationship and to those camps, and then who's coming there in good faith, and how much of that is happening behind closed doors? You know, is this almost like a... Um, I think it's Gone Girl is a movie ed that's based on a book where basically the um, uh, woman's unhappy in her marriage and like she disappears off the grid. She gets a have you have you seen the movie? OK. Yeah. And so at the and so like at the end of it, like they come back together and I don't know, I haven't read the book or everything. I saw the movie once and I'm like, God, this was weird. I'm never watching it again. But like the final scene is like them going on the equivalent of Oprah. It was a swoop. I don't think it was actually Oprah or anything about like talking about working on their marriage and their relationship. And are we going to have a baby? And like the, the fact that like she couldn't make it out on her own off the grid and everything and had to come back is like her compromised her relationship. But then like also like he, uh, the husband couldn't know that he can't dump her because of all the drama that came about with the perception and the trial that he murdered her and that kind of a thing. And like the final cut scene of it is like them cuddling like awkwardly in bed. And it's like, what have we done to each other? Like, this is what you have in that situation. What did Greg Berhalter do in the interview process? What advanced analytics that aren't win percentage and aren't ELO, which I'm not even convinced coaches have a say in. And of course, Greg Berhalter's win percentage is better than Jesse Marsh's, 
when you're playing CONCACAF opposition in mostly home friendlies versus Jesse Marsh, who's on a bad team that was poorly constructed, that overspent and got relegated. And clearly, we can, we can clearly see from that breakup that, like, Marsh was not the problem. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you saw it that you know, really almost xenophobic post that ESPN FC had, like, dunking on the Americans. But, like, it was none of their problem. I can't blame the 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 American who maybe deserves the most fault for Leeds' relegation. This year, it's maybe Brendan Aronson with underperforming from a goals and an assist standpoint, given what his transfer fee was. So, you know, the I, I wanted to hear, not only did I want to that I want to see evidence, Ed, that through that process, Greg Berhalter was the best candidate, but that he was the best candidate overcoming some of that baggage as well. Because like the, you know, they're going to have, they're not going to have World Cup qualifying, but all that reporting came out that the Reinas were open malcontents with the entire family in bed thing that they had in Qatar. Are the Reinas going to be invited? Is Gio's sister going to be invited to the camp and everything? Are they going to behave? Are they going to behave on the contingency that, you know, Gio's playing. Is Berhalter going to be able to hold Gio accountable for what are perfectly reasonable squad rotations, or he's injured, or he's just not playing well? And is the fan base going to accept that? Is the Federation going to accept that? Are the Reinas going to accept that? Like, there's a scenario here where Greg feels obligated to start Gio when on the merits of what he's doing, it, it doesn't, it's not deserved because having the team set up to be less successful on the field is worth less than the headaches that all the other stuff is going to come around. And again, I think uh, Gio's, that's not on him. His parents went full soccer Karens and everything. The um, Greg has, I think, rightfully, publicly and privately been held accountable for his actions when he was a drunk freshman at UNC with his then girlfriend and everything. But like, that's not Greg's fault. But at the same time, worst case scenario, Ed, Greg was going to come back and he was going to be on hiatus. He was going to be on sabbatical this year. And then an MLS team was going to hire. Or if we're believing the reports, he was going to get the Club America job, which I would argue is at worst the third best job in Liga MX as well. Or if he really wanted to, he could go back to Scandinavia. Berhalter did enough to where if you weren't around all of the noise and all of the drama, and once the investigation absolved him to where there weren't legal implications of a club or the Federation hiring him, to where he was going to be employable, making millions of dollars, and net benefit financially from from what he did with the United States as national team. That does not mean that U.S. soccer, given the hell that he went through for the last six months, that they owed it to him to hire him back and everything. And that's where I'm not even mad at Greg at this point. Like I'm, I'm mad at the process. I'm mad at whoever hired Matt Coker. I'm mad at Matt Coker for how he handled that and everything. And like the, just like the fact that, Oh, this process is going to be different and we're going to take our time and everything. And you get to the exact same result and you could have just extended Greg in February. Cause then at the very least he would have been, you know, in theory, five friendlies in one game against Mexico closer to doing it. And I'm ranting a whole lot. Interrupt me, please. No, you, you, you summed it all up really well. You, you know, I, I agree with everything you said. I, I also want to say, like, I don't even know. Like, I don't really believe this report anymore. I can't remember who it was. It was like Doug McIntyre or something said that they interviewed 10 coaches from a, a various places all around the world. Patrick Vieira's name got thrown out there. And I just think if you interview Patrick Vieira and you interview these coaches from other places, like, I just would be so fascinated to know what those guys said that wasn't good enough 
But what Greg Berhalter said and what Greg Berhalter did in the past was good enough. And and you can look at the win percentage, like you said. You know, he's got the. They love to post that he has the highest win percentage as a U.S. manager. I think it is, or, or something along those lines. Um, but but then I I would rebut that with what has he done outside of the United States? And I think he has not won a, a game, or he's only maybe won one or two games outside the United States. I remember those two friendlies right before the World Cup against Japan and I believe Saudi Arabia were like the worst I've seen us play in a long time. I think we got 2 nil by Japan and then it was nil nil against Saudi Arabia. So I just would love to know like what Greg Berhalter said that if he even said anything, and part of me thinks now that it was always his job. Like I think it was always his job. The, the interview process probably didn't happen, but it, just for the sake of conversation, if it did happen, there's no way someone like Vieira or, you know, just just because his name got thrown out there, there's no way someone like Jose Mourinho didn't have a better interview than Greg Berhalter did. I don't believe that for one second. Well, Jose is a little bit more of an a-hole, Ed. So <laughs> there's, the, there's the how good of a candidate you are, and then there's the are you going to be a fun co-worker to work with. So, you know, <laughs> Jose Mourinho is the is the Rich Sanchez of that scenario, I suppose. But no, to to your point, Ed, like, again, all of my questions now are about the process. And I wanted to hold back on, you know, are we going to get a list of interviews and interviewees that they had? You know, as soon as as soon as Patrick Vieira's name came off, if I'm going to be honest with you, Ed, if you asked me a month ago, I have a choice between if Patrick Vieira's in the candidate pool, I'm picking him over Jesse Marsh. If you have to pick American candidates, I would have been Jesse Marsh. Um, but, you know, I, the, I, I think Steve Sharundalo's name got thrown out there. I don't remember which outlet had. Um, I get that he's coming off of a really good, you know, what, not quite a calendar year. No, uh, 18 months now with LAFC, but only having two years of experience in terms of at the first team level as well, albeit everything that he did at the youth level. If, if you want to say that Steve Sharundalo should be the new academy director for U.S. soccer or everything and everything and live at Soccer House and be one of those, I could be completely talked into that with what he did in the academy, um, you know, um, back at the club and at 96 Hanover, for example. Um, with what he did there. But, you know, Jim Curtin with what he's done in MLS, albeit without the European experience. But Patrick Vieira, from a, a resume and a pedigree standpoint, would have been perfect for me, Ed, because of how tactically complex he is. Coaching in the United States, so he understands the American player. Coaching in Europe, so obviously he understands where the American is coming from. Maybe he sees something in Chris Richard to where it didn't make sense uh, in uh, the in the Premier League, but it would make sense at the national team level. And a guy who's also done it at the international level. So to, to your point, Ed, about Berhalter getting hired on the back of he's he, he almost to your point about <clears throat> it was his job to lose. Like he's almost winning. This is like an an incumbent of the thought of. Having a guy who's previously coached the U.S. in a World Cup is more valuable than having a guy who hasn't, as if Jesse's time in Europe and how he thinks about the game wasn't warranted in that regard, or Patrick Vieira's experience, both coaching and as a player, weren't valid. And so I, I understand, I think Greg was a good guy at the time that you had it, given the turmoil coming out of the 2018 World Cup. But outside of that, from a coaching standpoint, Ed, he's an above average to potentially a really good head coach in MLS. I think we're above that at a federation. And he had some good experiences in Europe as well. I, are they as good as the non-Swansea experiences that Bob Bradley had? No, I, I can't remember what Scandinavian team that he was at. They were pretty decent and well. But, you know, 
Bob Bradley coming, you know, one penalty away from getting Lahove from uh, promoted back into Ligue I think was a more impressive club standpoint. What Jesse did in Germany was absolutely fantastic. And if he had been given two more months, two more weeks in order to try and do something, you know, for Leeds and everything, and he had kept Leeds up as well, he absolutely would have been better in that regard. So the I, I almost <clears throat> I'm mad that Greg's hired Ed, but I'm no longer going to take that out on Greg for being something that he's not. I'm going to put this more so on the I'm going to put this more so like on the Federation and like their dysfunction. So like the from one Lakers fan to another, I'm not mad that Mike Brown was an absolute disaster with the Lakers. I'm mad that uh, that, um, uh, not Genie Bus, um, the other bus kid whose name I can't remember, whose first name I can't remember. Joey is it Joey Bus? I I can't. You, you, we both know what I'm talking about. I, <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm mad at the dysfunction of the Bus family and the power vacuum and the disaster of a succession situation that happened at the Lakers post the death of Doctor Bus. And I'm far more upset at the succession disaster that has happened since Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride's departure and what Matt Cooker, who was coming in, who was supposed to be a reasonable, data driven, sane outsider, that he came to the exact same decision to the point where now i think understandably the even more like conspiracy theory youtube channels ed that normally i don't give any time to whatsoever because i think they're so like there's a point where they could almost ask like the did somebody else within there say matt croker could have the job but then like it's going to be greg or greg has to be your default and everything that's to the point where the people on youtube i would not give the time of day the people who would say that like um you know, Pulisic should have been starting over Raheem Edwards, not Raheem Edwards, excuse me, Raheem Sterling at um at at Chelsea and everything. Those are the types of crazy things that normally they would say that I'm like, this is why I don't like being a part of this fan base and everything. There are now questions that they're going to ask that normally would seem crazy that I now think are reasonable questions to ask because of the absolute lack of transparency there's been in this process. Show me the interview process, like actually name names of who was interviewed. If Patrick Vieira wasn't interviewed, say that Patrick Vieira wasn't interviewed. You know, we have Jesse Marsh's agent, you know, confirming that Jesse wouldn't be uh, the next USMNT coach. I have to assume that means that he was interviewed. What was that like? Uh, Jesse will probably dish in two years or he'll probably dish after the fact because he doesn't want to undermine Grain because he's a good guy. And I respect that as well. But I feel we're owed answers. And the fact that U.S. soccer continue to can't um, answer this continues to be frustrating for me. Um, I'm not hearing the... I don't want to hear the excuses about the finances when it comes to the other American options that they had. Um, Charlie Davies wrongfully said on the broadcast on Thursday, folks, and I don't know if you got wind of this from the press box and everything. He posited that the uh, equal pay thing for the players between the men's and the women's was potentially also applicable to the head coaches. So if you wanted to bring in a Pep Guardiola and pay him $20 million a year, that then meant that you had to give the same compensation to the women's coaching staff. That's been completely debunked and everything. The questions about the finances from the Federation, given all the money they've spent on internal investigations and legal fees because they're dysfunctional, I think is valid from that standpoint. But if we're saying that Greg's coming back at the reported $2 million a year that he was getting, you could have, like, I have to believe Jesse would have taken that. I have to believe Jim Curtin would have taken that. Steve Trondolo as well. You want to say that that means that you call Patrick Kamira, interviewed him, and then you said, hey, Patrick, here's the financial compensation. And he's like, nah, I can do better than that. I'll wait for a Premier League team that's desperate. Fine with me. If that completely removes you out of the Jose Mourinho's, the Pep Guardi, well, we weren't going to get Pep Guardiola off of winning <laughs> the Champions League. But if that removes you from some of the more international candidates, I can understand and I can forgive that, but you can't tell me that money was the reason that Greg Berhalter was taking that when he could have gotten just as much, potentially more. 
at another MLS team or certainly at Club America and that the American coaches and the data we have on their salaries in MLS or in Europe would have been comparable to where they would have been taking that. I don't know what Leeds, I don't know what Jesse Marsh was getting at Leeds United and everything, but I mean, the uh, unless it's like less than half, like the opportunity to coach your national team when that's a job you've wanted and in the and doing so when they're a host nation and everything, Jesse has to see the big picture that making a million dollars less is worth it because if you do something Jesse Marsh gets to a semi-final ed he's back in the Premier League like that fall if he absolutely wants to be and he's going to be given time and patience to do so or very easily he's going to have a, the next big MLS job that opens up like as soon as somebody gets fired he's going to be the immediate shortlist if he wanted to go to MLS and he could always go back to Germany or somewhere else like that so I, I don't want to hear the I don't want to hear I, I want to hear certain aspects of the financials if that was really a key variable, but I don't want to hear it in the context of the other reportedly interviewed American con, um, uh, candidates. Um, Ed, are we? I firmly believe at this point, like expectations and the ceiling for the national team could very well easily. Well, with the expanded format, it's going to be a round of thirty-two for the knockouts, right? I believe so. Yeah. I think I know. Okay, so I I can't see right now. I think the ceiling for the U.S. given everything that's happened and everything, I feel like if we were to make a quarterfinal, I would be happy if we had nailed the coaching hire and if can and continue to grow the young core. Maybe get one more dual national. I could see a point where we pull a Morocco, catch fire and catch lightning in a bottle and make a semifinal. I think that's now dead with what's happened in the last four days. Ed. Yeah, I agree. Um. I still think, yeah, quarterfinals is probably the absolute ceiling. Um, I think Copa America, though, I think semifinals is the ceiling. I, I think that this team should be good enough to win games in spite of maybe not having the best manager, um, at least at Copa America. At the World Cup, though, I definitely think it becomes a lot more difficult. I, I think what we saw a lot of under Greg was the players bailing out maybe some of his tactics that weren't working or that he just wasn't willing to change off of. So I don't think that that can get, that can only get you so far. We saw it against Netherlands. It, it didn't work. So I think at a world cup, yeah, quarterfinals is probably the ceiling, but I do think at Copa America that they've got the talent to maybe get to a semis. Mm-hmm. And I have to think with, um, where Chile and Uruguay are at at this point, Ed, I think the, the only two teams out of South America that I'd be convinced on talent, the U S is, Worse than would be Argentina and would be Brazil. So depending on the draw, you know, you get Brazil in the quarterfinal to not make a semifinal and you take them to extra time or, you know, lose one nil and everything. I'm fine with that. But yeah, I think semis at the Copa America. I don't think the U.S. was really going to win it. Um, if Neymar and Messi retire tomorrow from the national team, we can revisit that question. But certainly Brazil has to be coming in as the favorite for that Messi or not. Um, you know, and the, I think the big disappointment for me more so than the technicality of how many rounds there are and which round and are we winning the first round or actually getting back to a quarterfinal like we did in 2002. I think the bigger thing is I heard a really good argument, Ed. I don't remember who said it. Um, it might've been on in soccer. We trust, um, pointing out that, you know, you look at it, the one knockout game the U S has won in the modern era was against Mexico in the round of 16 in 2002. So if we're talking about the next step for us as a generation, for us as a soccer nation, we have to beat the teams that you consider to be a favorite or a contender for winning the World Cup in order to move on into the World Cup. 
the Netherlands would have been that kind of team. Belgium in 2014 would have been that kind of team. You know, we, we should have beaten Ghana. And at that point, then you're playing, I think it was one of South Korea or Uruguay. And then there was an actual, albeit soft path to a semifinal. I don't believe with this coaching hire that that gives the opportunity to where the U.S. could go up against a traditional power or a team that's better than them on talent or maybe, you know, doesn't have a suspension because a Salvadorian ref gives Weston McKinney a red card in the round of 16. I, I don't know that the U.S. can do any better in terms of the first big team that has a better coach, has a better history and has a better has has better player, either has better top end talent or has better overall rosters than us i'm not convinced that we're any better in a position to win that type of game like against holland in 2026 than we were last fall in Qatar. that's the biggest disappointment for me and again i i'm done apologizing for greg but i'm also done blaming greg at this point i don't fault him for taking that job as well but i'm i'm i continue to be mad at um at u.s soccer um ed you are welcome to join me and rachel for our friday night drunken rants of uh u.s soccer federation hasn't learned a thing in the last six years and um, I'm convinced the coaching staff and like the players have learned stuff since Kuva. I'm not convinced that the top brass or whatever rotation that that's actually happened. So, um, I look forward to seeing, um, this, uh, that new documentary on succession ed that looks more like an episode of Veep or like Arrested Development or Parks and Rec as well, where I'm just convinced that everything's dysfunctional and people are overpaid to do nothing. Um, but that's upper management for you. Okay, um, Ed, we've both got the United States winning tomorrow. That is the most important thing, and we're, we're going to be happy for that. And um, Ed, have we gotten confirmation? Um, Greg is uh, Callahan is coaching the Gold Cup as well. Yeah, that is which so is stupid. another. Oh my that's god! A, yeah, that, that doesn't make any sense. If it, it, it's like if you knew Greg was going to come back, why would you not just appoint him in February, like you said, so that he could at least try to build these relationships with Reina now? As, or back then, as opposed to after a Nations League, after a Gold Cup, we're looking forward to Copa America next year, and now he has to rebuild the relationships. It just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. But the, like the in all the things that don't make any sense, I think the one thing, if you pulled all of USMNT Twitter right now, of the under the premise that we're bringing Greg back, and it's been announced now. He's been in a press release next to Matt Croker and everything. They've taken questions from the media. Should Greg not be coaching the Gold Cup as well? Absolutely. Like the you, you got like the you, like this is the substitute teacher like substituting a exam on the last on like a half day in junior high, and nobody cares at this point. Like the we're at the I don't uh, listeners. Um, you've been listening <laughs> to Last Word Soccer Club Radio here at LastWordOnSports.com. Let me open up a uh, one of the Google Docs because I haven't done any of the ad reads and I forgot to do that. So we should do that. Um, that is not it. Oh, there's so much dysfunction, Edward. <laughs> okay, here we go. All right. So, um, listeners, we want to give a shout out to one of our sponsors, Athletic Greens. Their signature AG1 uh, is perfect for your daily nutrition and gut health support. AG1 solves two of the most important health needs and nutrition that your body needs every day and dealing with Greg Borhalter as your head coach. Just, just kidding. It is actually the foundation for healthy long-term gut health, something USMNT fans will need between now and the end of 2026. Together, they help fuel your entire body and impact everything from sleep, digestion, energy, mood, immunity, and playing in extra time uh, to help your healthy skin uh, hair and nails. Simpl simply follow the link in the description 
in the show notes of this podcast uh, to get uh, started with the aging one today. I want to thank Roughneck Scarves, who are an official scarf supplier of MLS, USL, and U.S. Soccer. Get your custom scarves and other merch for your group, team, or office at roughneckscarves.com, including the inevitable 2026 World Cup USMNT scarf. And then, are you tired of the same old uniforms and cookie-cutter templates that you get from Nike and Adidas? Do you want a new and unique kit that looks something uh, like the 94 denim kit or something close to that? For your club, adult, or even pro team, Icarus FC can help you design the kit of your World Cup dreams at an affordable price. Their motto is any design you want seriously. Let them help you let them help you design the custom kit of your dreams today at Icarus FC, even if it just says break out or coker out or I hate US soccer but still support the USMNT. It's custom and they can do it for you at IcarusFC.com. Listeners, you can follow us on Twitter at LastWordSC. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Just search LWS Radio. You'll find us and a bunch of other great content, including, I assume, my and Ed's long, rambling, incoherent uh, rants that we'll have, regardless of the result of Sunday's final between the United States and Canada. We'll see you then.